Okay, um, I want to remind you, if you've forgotten, uh, if, you're, if you're wondering where Romans is, um, Romans, well, what we're doing is looking at um, some stuff that really springs out of Mark chapter 7, but as a result of our study of Romans 14, you may recall that the issues in Romans 14 had to do with, with legalism, and, uh, and the issues were uh, meat sacrifice to idols, uh, holy days, and the consumption of alcoholic beverages. It was all in the text, all there in Romans 14. And so uh, we, we dealt with it in the fall, uh, dealing with the text of Romans 14. And then uh, in a passage where Jesus really um, um, makes some wonderful statements, that's what we're looking at now, Mark 7, in conjunction with, or as a result of, our, our study in Romans 14. So that's what we're up to. Um, Sunday morning, uh, I mentioned to you a story uh, that, um, that I had found in a Philip Yancey book about the prostitute who came uh, to visit him. I, did, I went back and looked at the story again, and he didn't, the prostitute didn't visit him. It visited, she visited a friend of his, but be that as it may. The prostitute was telling this horrible story about um, how she was renting out her two-year-old daughter and, and all that business. And, then, um, um, and by the way, uh, I hope you do know this. If, if that kind of stuff comes into my office, I am legally bound to report it, um, uh, instances of child abuse. That is certainly true. Um, and so, you know, uh, Yancey's thinking, what do I say to this poor woman? What do I say? And then he said, um, have you ever thought about going to the church and, and asking for help? And, and uh, the point was that um, he said, I, I will never forget that look of pure, naive shock that, that crossed upon her face. And she said, church? Why would I go to church? I mean, I feel bad enough already. They just make me feel worse. Now, that was the story on Sunday, and, and, and you know, you, you, you might not be able to relate to that, a, a, a prostitute. I mean, not many prostitutes visit Grace of Ann, um, uh, and certainly not ones who are renting out their two-year-old daughter. Uh, and you may not be able to relate to that, relate to that but how about this? Uh, this, might be, um, this might be more true to life. Would a, um, would a liberal, pro-choice... Democrat, who, uh, who struggles with homosexual tendencies, would they ever pursue help here? You think? Would they feel comfortable here? Forget the prostitute and her two-year-old daughter. Just, what about a, a liberal Democrat? You know, guys, um, I, I want you to consider this. Um, in the New Testament, who is it that found Jesus the most appealing? Um, well, let me, list, let me just mention a few of them. There was a Samaritan woman uh, who was a social outcast who had five husbands, and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. Um, there was a military officer who served this tyrant, Herod, um, there was this Quisling, a tax collector. Um, there was a woman who was a recent hostess to seven demons. There, was a, um, there were several lepers. And then there was a lady of the night in, um, in Luke 7. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, um, one of the most famous chapters in all the New Testament is Luke chapter 15. I think you probably know that. If you don't know it, you will know it. Because uh, Luke 15 is called the, the lost and found of the New Testament. It consists really of uh, three parables, the, the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, the, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sheep. 
But did you know how that chapter starts? In fact, if you've never seen this, you ought to take a look at it. Um, in, in Luke chapter 15, those three parables um, Jesus delivers as a result of some criticism he was getting. Um, if you look at me, look with me at Luke 15, uh, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, he receives sinners and eats with them. And as a result of that criticism, ladies and gentlemen, you get three parables. Lost coin, lost sheep, and the lost son. Uh, as a result of the, of the religious establishment really um, being very uh, suspicious of him and very disapproving of him hanging out with so many sinners, um, he issues some of the most famous, perhaps one, if not the most, certainly the second most famous parable in the New Testament. I, I want to show you one other thing um, that I think makes my point. But this is really from the Old Testament. And one of the things we talk a lot about around here is, um, is typology. That is, the, the types of Christ in the Old Testament. That there are several uh, types of Christ in the Old Testament. And, you know, Joseph is a good example. But one of the better examples of the type of Christ in the Old Testament is David. I think you know that. Uh, David is a type of Christ. And you, you learn things about the life of Christ by looking at the life of David. If, if you've got time and can find uh, 1 Samuel 22 real quick, I want to show you something about the life of David, who was a type of Christ. I want to read you just two verses out of um, 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the... Oh, by the way, you know David became the king of Israel after Saul, but you know Saul tracked him down, hunted him down like a wild animal. And they, David ran from him and, and um, hid in caves. And one, uh, If you've ever been to uh, En Gedi, and, uh, that's where one of the hangouts that David hid from, da- uh, from Saul. Well, anyway... Um, uh, we're told here, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers uh, and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. And, and look at verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Who was it that was drawn to David? Well, it was all these, these uh, ne'er-do-wells who uh, were in distress and, and, and debt, and, and everybody was bitter in soul. It was all those marginalized people, those people that were cut off from the mainstream. Those were the ones that were drawn to David. Those are the ones that felt comfortable with David. And David is a type of Christ, ladies and gentlemen. That's the point. The, the people who felt best with David and the people who felt most comfortable with Jesus were those people who were so aware that they had all kinds of issues. So guys... Um, on the other hand, Jesus gets this very chilly response from the more respectable types. Um, now, with that in mind, I want to ask you just a series of questions. Is it true today that that dynamic has changed? By that I mean this. Does the Christian church now attract those that closely resemble the people who were most suspicious of Jesus in the New Testament and repel those who were most comfortable and drawn to Jesus? Why don't sinners 
like and enjoy and feel comfortable around us. Have we, have we become the representatives of um, the God of the gotcha? Um, is the church increasingly viewed as the enemy of sinners while our Savior was vilified because he was the friend of sinners? Do the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he was alive on earth no longer feel welcome among those who say we are followers of this Jesus? You know, guys, I'm not sure that all of that or any of that, I I, I would say that some of that is certainly descriptive of us. Maybe not all of it. Um, so if any of that is descriptive of us at Grace Evan right now, what happened? What happened that the church, who's supposed to be following this friend, this one who was the friend of sinners, has become no longer the friend of sinners? And, and they're uncomfortable in our midst. Well, I would suggest that at least part of the explanation is to be found in the incursions of legalism in the Christian church. Or said conversely, um, part of the explanation has to be found in the erosion of grace. Now gang, at this point, we're really going to get boring. You thought that first ten minutes was boring. Well, we're really going to get boring now. Because what I need to do is do something that, um, that, I really, that I did with the word legalism but I also need to do with the word grace. Um, uh, you, you, when we first started this whole thing, um, um, I told you that there, were, there, was a, there was a couple of ways um, that legalism could be understood, the word legalism. I said that there is, a, there is a way that legalism denies the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, uh, Judaism, 20th, 1st century Judaism, is a classic illustration of how um, there is an effort on the part of Judaism to be saved by keeping the law, which is a denial of justification by faith, and that's, that's one way that you can use the word legalism. But I said to you, there's also a way to use the word legalism when it comes to the whole doctrine of sanctification as well. That is, legalism can be used to describe something that is descriptive of non-Christians, and that wasn't going to be the subject of this series. But the term legalism can also be used to describe an error that exists among Christians in terms of their whole approach, their whole idea, their whole understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. I, I said that four weeks ago on January the 4th in terms of an understanding of the word legalism. Now we come to the word grace. And I wonder if you know that that word is used variously in the New Testament. It is a word that can be used to describe justification by faith. Yes, 
The classic statement of this is Ephesians 2, 9, 2 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. Okay? That term is being used to describe something that happens when people come to Christ for the first time. But it is also used, and I'm going to show you that. It is the word grace is also descriptive, not simply of a justifying act or the, or the, the, the act of justification, but for the life of sanctification. And that's where we're talking, ladies and gentlemen. We're not talking about over here about trying to figure out how law can save me and all that business. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Christians mistaking that word, whereas, I mean, if, if you mistake it in one sense, you're a non-Christian. But I'm talking about people who have come to faith in Christ and Christ alone, but are still abusing the whole idea of grace. And so I just want to show you, this is a, I said it was going to be boring. It's, I mean, this is a little bit of a word study. Okay, I want to show you in the New Testament how the word grace is used. By the way, this is, a, this is what I do for a living, is do word studies a lot. But if you, I mean, if you wanted to do something like this, you just get yourself a, a, a concordance, you look up the word grace, and, and ladies and gentlemen, in the New Testament, I mean, I'm estimating, the word grace is found 85 to 100 times in, in, um, in the New Testament. But what I'm trying to find out is, how is the word used? Well, I know how it's used in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but let's, I want to I show you seven places. Seven places, guys. So, um, stay, stay with me. Let's start in Acts 13. And we're going we're gonna to kind of keep this in, a, in, in, um, in order. So we'll just move to the back of the New Testament as we go. Acts 13. I want you to see verse 43. Uh, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You're already in it whatever it is, this grace thing, whatever it is that you're in, called grace, stay in it. Now again, guys, I'm saying that these are texts written to descriptive of Christians. All right, Paul, Barnabas, you guys are walking this lifestyle um, and, 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 and stay in it. Stay in that lifestyle of grace. Okay, stay with me. Go over to Romans chapter 6. This is a big one. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin will, no, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Grace had, I mean, law had to do with performance. But you're not under that anymore. I mean, you've, you've settled that issue. Now that you're a Christian, you are under grace. And it's, and it's set in contradistinction to law. By the way, stay with me because what I'm trying to do is to work up some kind of decent definition of the term. You're not under that anymore. You're under this. You're not under that thing um, that had to do with performance. No, no, no. You're under Grace. Christians, all right? Keep going. About 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
we've only got seven of these, so I'm not going to, I mean, I could, we could have done this for hours, because there's 100 instances. But I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which says where, yeah, this is interesting one too. You know this one. This is verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, what do you think it means there? What is, I mean, Paul is quoting God here. And Paul says, God said to him, Paul, my grace is enough. What is enough? What is this thing, ladies and gentlemen, that is enough? It's called grace. What is that? What is it that's enough for me as I try to proceed in my efforts at following Jesus Christ? Well, whatever it is, God says, yeah, that's enough. That's all you need is just grace. Is it, is it what, what is sufficient for us? Is it his love, his forgiveness, his approval, or is it all of those, all of those things? Okay, now, again, um, go to Colossians, oh, this is an interesting one, too. This will confuse you just a little bit. Colossians 4, because the NIV kind of botched it, I think. Um, And not the NIV, the ESV botched it. I'm in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, let your speech always be gracious. Hey, guys, every translation in the room except the ESV has um, in grace or with grace. Um, The Greek is in... Uh, it's chorus, which is grace, uh, in the dative with the, with the uh, preposition in. All I'm saying is th- they took a little bit of liberty here in the ESV saying, let your speech be gracious. Literally, let your speech be in grace. Whatever this grace thing is, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> listen, it's supposed to affect how I talk. Grace shows up in my talking, in my language, in my conversations. Let your speech always be in karate, in grace. Hmm. Okay, guys, what we're trying to do is, 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 is take all these texts and fit them into a picture and try to come up with something that is manageable for us, because we throw this word around, oh, yeah, grace, I love grace. What, what do you love? Okay, um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Whatever this grace thing is, it, I mean, 2 Timothy 2, 1, whatever this grace thing is, it provides strength for Christian living. Be strengthened by the grace that you find in Jesus Christ. You still with me? Um, Two more. They're both in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, says this. Oh, I love this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by, I mean, guys... The way that you understand this grace of God thing here in verse uh, 15, that is Hebrews 12, 15, is in comparison to some people who have developed a root of bitterness. No, 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 no. See to it that all of you, you know, uh, don't miss out on this grace thing, because if you do, you'll end up bitter. We don't want that. 
So grace is supposed to sweeten us up a little bit, you know? Whatever it is, it's supposed to prevent bitterness. And then in chapter 13, verse 9, where we find, Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have been benefited, uh, benefited those devoted to them. Now, guys, I hope you see at least what I'm trying to do. We, we really probably should add another 25 verses like this and then come and try to distill it down into a reasonable, workable definition. That's what we should do. We don't have time to do that. But do you see? All I'm trying to point out at this moment is you can use this term in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it will have something to do with the doctrine of justification by faith. But I have showed you seven instances, and there are numerous others, where the word grace is not having to do with the beginning and entrance into the Christian life. It has to do with my living of it. The word grace is is descriptive of what I'm trying to do now that I have become a Christian. These are texts, these seven texts, are all spoken to Christians about about an approach to Christian living that's supposed to strengthen me, it's supposed to affect how I talk, uh, it's supposed to prevent me from being embittered, it's supposed to be something I um, draw from Jesus Christ, All of those things, guys, are supposed to be factored in as we come up with a reasonable, workable definition of what it means, what grace means. And so for you to sit there and say, oh, I know what grace means. It means God's riches is Christ's expense. Ladies and gentlemen, that is nonsense. By the way, there's nothing that's wrong about that or wicked. It's just so short-sighted. It's so weak. Now, so I've showed you seven verses about an approach to Christian living. Now, what I'm going to do now is, <laughs> is risk your disdain because what I'm about to give you is nothing that you'll ever find in a systematic theology book. You won't find it in any book. I made this up. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I didn't make it up. I, I've, I've, you know, guys, I've told you before, the only thing I know is in a book or on a tape, but if it's not in a book or on a CD or a tape, I don't know it. And when I give you something original, I want you to know, I want you to fully appreciate it. I mean, you know, uh, well, this is one of those, one of those rare instances. I don't think there's but three in 35 years of ministry, but uh, here's, here's number three. Guys, in terms of why is the church so sick, or at least one of the reasons that she's sick, even the evangelicals who are, who are committed to the gospel, why is she sick? Well, I'm suggesting that because of incursions of illegalism or the erosion of grace. Well, then, okay, then what the heck is grace? What is eroded? Because I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's kind of the, uh, my approach to a definition. Grace has to do with a posture. It has to do with an attitude. It has to do with a mindset. It has to do with the framework. It has to do with an approach. It has to do with the way that I view things. As a Christian, I I am to flesh out my Christianity 
based on this new mindset, this new attitude that has taken over the way that I view everything. And that's, that's just the start. I'm not done. But it has to do with my whole approach, my whole mindset, my whole attitude, my, my, my view of things. Okay? Now, here's where I'm going to risk your disdain. Because I am going to suggest to you what one word, in my opinion, take it or leave it, in my opinion, best summarizes grace. And I, if I were to give you the rest of the night, I don't think you could come up with it. Maybe you could. <laughs> I mean, because I'm, I'm perverted, not because you're stupid, because I'm, I choose a, a funny word. But the one word that describes this approach, the one word for me that describes this mindset, the one word that, that s- describes this approach and this way of viewing things, this attitude, this, the one word that best in my mind summarizes the posture that's supposed to be adopted by those of us who have been bought by the price of Christ's shed blood is the word freedom. Freedom. Guys, the Lord Jesus, um, on, on one occasion, um, in, says in John eight thirty six, he says, So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, guys, so if you've come to Christ, which we all profess to have done, then Jesus says the thing that, that ought to be true of you is that you're, you're set free. The, the other text that I would allude to is in Galatians 5, where, where Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Gang, I choose that word, and again, I don't, I don't know that I, you'll ever find it in a, in a theological workbook. And maybe I choose that word because I'm a maverick. Maybe I choose that word because I'm a rebel. Maybe. But I want to suggest to you that it's, a, it's, that it's a fair summary of everything that ought to be held dear to us in terms of grace. Because, because my freedom means that I'm set free, first of all, from law. And as a result of being set free from law, I'm, I'm, I'm set free from this insistence upon and value of performance. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. Law means performance. I'm free from that. For heaven's sakes, I'm free from that. I want nothing to do with it. Because primarily, ladies and gentlemen, the goal of the performer is to look good. And I am free from appearances. Because if I don't take my Bible to church on Sunday nights, then my goodness, my my little crowd might talk bad about me. Mm. I'm free from that, ladies and gentlemen. I have been set free from the law. I have been set free from performance, a performance that, that longs for human approval. 
I want my crowd to say, well, now, he's a spiritual person right there. I mean, that boy serves on every committee and every, you know. I'm not saying serving on committees is bad. I'm simply saying I'm free. Grace has set me free from having to worry about whether you think I'm spiritual or not. I'm free from the insecurity and uncertainty of my status before God. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, most, not, I shouldn't say this, I don't really know. I, that would be mean and arrogant of me. But I'm telling you, a lot of you still have all kinds of difficulties just believing that you're safe. That, that God approves of you. And that all is well when you die. Well, I've been set free from that. I've been set free from the insecurity that comes from worrying about my status with God. What set me free? Grace did. I draw it out of Jesus Christ's finished work. I'm set free from it. I am set free from sin. That is, I am now... At least there's the possibility that I am free to obey. I want to obey, but not because it changes my status. But I'm free to go obey and follow Jesus Christ. Not for grace, but from it. I work out of it, not for it. I work out of that which has made me certain of my standing and has set me free to stop having to check my my membership card so that I can go obey. Guys, um, when I'm trying to figure out what a Christian looks like or what he talks like, I don't consult the rules. I consult Christ. That's grace. I'm free from your rules. And very frankly, I've got to answer to somebody a whole lot more holy than you. But I'm free from you. I'm free. (laughs) And what set me free? Grace set me free. And because... By the way, I should say this real quick before we, before y'all get out of here. I hope you will come back next week because you need to hear another side of this, a whole other side, which will kind of balance the whole thing out. I hope you will. I mean that. I mean you're going to walk out of here a little bit imbalanced, but uh, you know we're, that, that's nothing new. Or, um, but it is grace that has set me free. Therefore. I don't have to consult you, and I don't have to consult the church. I've got someone to consult. The reason that I want to tell the truth is not because you say that truth is required. I want to tell the truth because Jesus is truth. I don't consult the rule book or the code established by the church. I consult the person. I'm not working for grace. I'm working from it. So, where do I go? 
I keep going back to the Savior and back to the Savior who has set me free. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what I'm suggesting when I say the reason that sinners don't feel comfortable around us anymore is because of the the incursions of law. And law is going to hurt you. And so a little prostitute who needs help is going to run from us folk who can only spout law or performance or appearances. It's ugly. It's just ugly. Who wants it? I don't. I don't want it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, But a bunch of people whose highest loyalty is not to the church, I better not say that. Their highest loyalty is not to the church. It's not to their denominations. Their highest loyalty is to the person of Christ, him. I am loyal to and long to emulate, not you. You're not my hero. And God forbid that I should be yours. The hero is the person who set us free. Now, go be loyal to him. You, go, you be loyal to him and we'll all be fine. You know, one of the things that, that pastors um, really get nervous about, and you hear it, you hear it often, particularly when a senior pastor is hiring staff. They want to make sure that whatever staff they hire will be loyal to them. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I ain't worth being loyal to. But you be loyal to Christ, I be loyal to Christ, we'll be fine. That's what grace is, ladies and gentlemen. I'm free to go emulate Christ in the power of the Spirit. Hope we'll see you next week because we'll try to give a fuller description. Father, I thank you um, for this, this glorious doctrine of free grace that we get to preach, one that um, is not heavy on law, but one that promotes simply faithfulness to Jesus Christ as the standard, as the model, as the uh, exemplar, as the high priest, as the savior, as the lover of our souls. Would you, um, would you teach us the beauty, the utter beauty of grace? Do that for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you and good night.